Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in the reading and hearing of your word today. Draw us near to Jesus. Show us his face. Teach us what it looks like for us to follow him wherever he goes. And regardless of his, the crowd's estimation of him, let us regard only his estimation of us. This we pray in his name. He who has died and risen on our behalf and for your glory. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from Psalm 118. We'll read verses 1 through 2 and 19 through 29. Hear this word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 9, and we'll go through verse 19. Hear this word. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and said on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see... You can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For it is you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On Sunday, the the crowd is intrigued. They want to see Jesus, and just as much as they want to see Jesus, they want to see Lazarus because Jesus is hanging out at his house, and they all read Lazarus' obituary. They didn't have obituaries back then, but all of them knew that Lazarus had been dead and in the tomb for three days, such that they said he stank, and Jesus had raised him from the dead. And the the chief priests are unhappy. They're unhappy with all of the energy that Jesus is generating, so they want to put Jesus to death. And because Lazarus is a part of all this energy, they want Lazarus dead too. They want to kill the man who already died. The end of the week, the end of the week, though, will be very different. On Sunday, the crowd is intrigued, energized. Jesus is a threat. But by the end of the week, the crowd will be energized in a different direction, not intrigued with Jesus, but angry with him. Right now, they're mobilized. They're ready for Jesus to save them. In fact, that's what they shout. Hosanna, the Hebrew word for save us. Hosanna in the highest, they say. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they make their confession of faith clear. The king of Israel. They cite Psalm 118. They live into Psalm 118, binding together branches, waving them for Jesus, welcoming their victorious king, Into Jerusalem, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and his name is Jesus. On Sunday, they find Jesus captivating. The whole crowd is following after Jesus. They're praising him. They're they're offering him all the accolades. They recognize Jesus for exactly who he is. But by the time it gets to Thursday, a short time later, Pilate is saying, I I don't find any case against Jesus, but you have a custom that I release to you one prisoner at the Passover. So do you want me to give you the king of the Jews? And at this point, the crowd says, no, not that man. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a bandit. A violent criminal, a thief, and they wanted Barabbas more than they wanted Jesus. On Sunday, the crowd couldn't have praised him anymore, aligning his interest with the interest of God. The king of Israel has arrived to save us. And then, instead of him, they want Barabbas. Not long after, Pilate comes back out and he talks to the crowd again. And and, and he says, what what should I do with him? And they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests who've now begun to lead the crowd say he's not our king. Only Caesar is our king. 
the way that the the demands have have shaped have shaped the time and the attention of the chief priest is fascinating in this story. The religious leaders who should be interested in the things of God and leading the crowd into the things of God are worried that the crowd has been distracted in their attention to Jesus and they want the attention back on themselves and on their leadership and intercession for the people to God. And in all of that, as the religious leaders vie for the attention of the crowd, they miss Jesus. And then not only do they miss Jesus, but they lead the whole crowd astray. These who were all following after him, they could see that the whole world was going to follow after Jesus. And by Thursday, they've redirected them to crucify Jesus. Over the last 15 months of our lives, crowds have loomed large in what's gone on in the pandemic. This is a disorienting thing, especially when you consider how little crowds have been able to assemble in the last year. And even so, in some ways, it's certainly been the year of COVID, but it's also been the year of the crowd. Even though we haven't been able to gather in so many ways for so many important things, the crowds, the crowds have driven so much of what's happened. Sometimes physically gathered crowds, sometimes mobilizing online through posts and likes and shares, retweets and replies. The crowd has been shifting the seas of how things work. The crowd has been very active through 2020 and the beginning of 2021. And you might not have aligned with any of the crowds that emerged in the last year, but I'd guess that none of us have approved of all of them. There were the Black Lives Matter crowds and the COVID is a hoax disinformation crowds and the end of the world crowds and the government and corporate overreach crowds. There was the Stop the Steal crowd on January 6th. Just this week, there was a crowd in Tupelo that mobilized via Facebook and social media over a very small thing in all of world affairs. There was an employee at a local coffee shop who ate a pastry and she forgot to pay for it or failed to pay for it. And the owner of the, uh, of the coffee shop sent her a text message after seeing on the video that it, had been, um, that it had been paid for or that it had been eaten and not paid for. And then proceeded to fire this employee by text. Or at least that's what the screenshot of the text messages seemed to show. And before you know it, the crowd online has gotten so significant that there's a coffee shop in Indiana that has the same name as this coffee shop in Tupelo that's beginning to get bad reviews and bad feedback online because people are so mad in Tupelo, they're not even paying attention to which coffee shop they're criticizing. The whole crowd is threatening to never go back and shop there. And then... 
the crowd splits and some of the crowd begins to criticize the cancel culture that's happening and, and how, how no one really knows what happened and they begin to protest the protest. It's a counter-protest and everyone online is arguing and there are thousands of comments on all of these posts. And it's impossible to know what's true and what's not. It turns out that the owners of this coffee shop happen to be Methodists who attend church and faithfully participate, which in no way changes the facts of what happened, but might change which crowd you want to join. And in fact, as I told the story, I bet some of you have been trying to figure out which coffee shop I'm talking about or which side you ought to take. Should it be the side of the employee who was fired over something so frivolous? Should it be the side of the shop owner who can't trust an employee who doesn't live with integrity? Was it just a mistake or was it malicious? Are you concerned about the human resources side of it and aware that the coffee shop can't always say everything about a termination for fear of lawsuits and retribution? Even as you hear me tell the story, I would imagine that you yourself are finding a way to defend one side or the other, to join the crowd or the counter-protest or whatever it is. And with all the conversation that's emerged in the last couple of years over what we call cancel culture, we act like this is a new problem, but it's been going on at least for decades. It was more than 10 years ago that Chick-fil-A got caught in a similar kerfuffle between LGBTQ activists on the one hand and other supporters of Chick-fil-A on the others. And honor and shame culture goes all the way back before the times of the New Testament. What we learn in Holy Week, or at least what we have to reckon with in Holy Week, is that the crowd is never good at nuance. The crowd is incapable of virtue, such as justice or love, in any kind of recognizable way. The crowd is entirely unreliable. You cannot count on the crowd. Except in one sense, you can always assume that the crowd will work exclusively in binaries, that the crowd will be for or the crowd will be against, that the crowd will be for friend or against foe. In writing about how the crowd functions in the book of Acts, it turns out that the the crowd is a theme throughout New Testament scripture. Willie Jennings, one of my professors from Duke, says, The volume of a crowd is never an indication of the strength of their faith, but always of their vulnerability and their fear. The crowd needs faith. A crowd that gains faith shrinks in size and becomes a congregation. The crowd thinks in absolutes, kill or be killed. The crowd is unreliable to do anything except to embrace the absolute. Jesus is our king, they shout on Sunday. Crucify him, they shout on Thursday. Kill or be killed. The crowd, as they shout louder and louder, become less and less sure of the things that they're shouting. 
and more and more caught up in the community that has united and the power that emerges as they shout. A crowd that has their attention on God probably won't remain a crowd for very long, not not until the end of all things. Instead, as the crowd becomes faithful, becomes a congregation, a gathering of people that can listen and speak, a gathering of, of persons who see one another as persons in all of their beauty and glory and all of their brokenness and sin. A congregation can be a place where faith can happen. But the crowd, the crowd is at the mercy of whatever talking point or banner has captured their attention for that moment. And make no mistake, the crowd has power. Because the cumulative power of a crowd can change a great deal. It can cause a great deal of destruction. We've seen that in the riots of the last year. If you can mobilize a crowd, you have power at your fingertips. But the crowd is not reliable. And the way I'm phrasing this is important. You, you cannot jump into the, just jump into the crowd and assume that whatever the crowd is saying is correct. But also the crowd is not reliable. And so you cannot just assume that the crowd is wrong just because the crowd is saying it. In other words, Christians can't only insist that we are countercultural. There are times where the culture gets it right. Sometimes the crowd gets it astoundingly right. Sometimes it gets it horrifyingly wrong. You can't predict or project what it will be one way or another because a crowd is unreliable. This is human nature, and it's really one of the most dangerous things about democracy. Now, as I say this, I'm not advocating for a different kind of government. Uh, Winston Churchill said, Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it's been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Democracy depends on the power of the crowd. The crowd can be angry protesters. The crowd can be violent rioters. The crowd can be adoring fans. The crowd can be keyboard warriors sitting behind their screen, typing things, uniting their efforts with others online. And the crowd can be voters. Elections, at the end of the day, don't ultimately hinge on truth or virtue or prudence or wisdom. They shift on who can generate the largest crowd, who can swing the crowd one way or another. In fact, fear of the crowd is one of the reasons that we have a representative government rather than a direct democracy, where every person votes on every decision. Because our founding fathers felt that picking leaders rather than deciding everything provides at least some separation from the tyranny of the majority. Even so, even if the crowd is unreliable, 
It's human nature to want to be a part of the crowd. Or maybe even more than that, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, to want to bend the will of the crowd towards our ends. And not all of the people listening today are on social media, but for those of you who are, you should know that social media makes these dynamics even more dangerous. Because whatever mobilizes the crowd, whatever gets large groups of people talking and arguing, social media companies call this engagement. Whatever gets them pushing others' buttons and engaging with one another is good for their business. So they promote those things to the top. And generally, we get even more motivated by anger than we do by joy and love. So the things that we see will be the best and the worst on social media. The crowd is unreliable. It's unreliable to get it right, and it's unreliable to get it wrong all the time. That's how the crowd can proclaim Jesus as king on Sunday and shout for his crucifixion on Thursday. So I want you to hear me say clearly today, that Christians should not trust the crowd. Don't trust the crowd to give you the facts or even to be interested in them. Don't trust the crowd for nuance or for a concern for justice or to offer your love, to offer you love. If you don't believe me, look at the celebrities who were adored on one day and then left abandoned and alone on the next because the next big thing came along. Or because they said the wrong thing once and everyone distanced themselves. The crowd never loves celebrities. The crowd likes to give celebrities attention. The the celebrity is never a real person to the crowd. Always just a figure, a symbol, something to entertain them. Don't trust the crowd to get it right or get it wrong, because the crowd is unsure of justice, incapable of love, unconcerned with nuance. If you can't trust the crowd, whom can you trust? You can trust the one person who reliably tells the truth. You can trust the one who is the way and the truth and the life. When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowd is waving palm branches and shouting, save us and acclaiming him the king of the Jews, we don't hear anything from Jesus or from his disciples. We see from the eyes of the crowd in this story. We, John does a wonderful job of helping us be participants in the crowd, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. This is what we do on Palm Sunday. We join the crowd that is truly proclaiming who Jesus is. The one who will be the king of Israel. And as they shout, they are right. But their shouts are not a sign of their faith. The volume of their shouts are no indication of their loyalty to Jesus. They desperately want someone who can lead them from the hands of the Romans. Who can save them from the taxes they don't want to pay. They want to be saved. They need to be saved. But they have a very particular definition of what that ought to look like. And the chief priests need Jesus dead. 
because they see the power of the crowd that is surrounding him. They see that the whole world is leaving them to follow Jesus. And the Pharisees can't allow for that, for the world to go after Jesus. And even the disciples don't understand everything that's happening for a long time. So the people welcome Jesus as king. They celebrate him as their savior. And then Jesus gets off his donkey after he's processed into town and he tells them that he's going to die. This is what we talked about last week. That Jesus says that he himself is going to die. That in doing so, he's going to glorify the father. And anyone who wants to glorify the father with him must give up their lives. They must hate their lives. And the crowd isn't interested in a dead Savior. And they're not interested in dying either. So they begin to depart from Jesus, despite all the signs he's offered and everything else. Before he departs from them, Jesus warns them. He warns the disciples. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing so by offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus says the crowd is going to reject you too. The good religious folks are going to get it wrong because they're far from Jesus. And rejecting him, they're going to reject God altogether. It's a sobering reality that we can't trust the crowd. But we can trust Jesus. And we can follow him. We can follow him when the whole crowd is ready to praise his name and welcome him as their savior. We can follow him when everyone else deserts him. And when the crowd turns on him and when the crowd turns on his followers, sometimes following Jesus will be easy and beautiful and celebratory. And sometimes it will be hard and lonely and terrifying. When it gets hard, we don't have to run away when we fail. Even Peter denied Jesus three times and, and Jesus comes back and restores him. The crowd may not be capable of love or justice. The crowd may not be able to be trusted to get it right or to get it wrong. But Jesus can be trusted. Jesus has come to save us. He is coming to save us. He is the king of the Jews and the whole world. And he doesn't leave us orphaned. Even when we stray, even when we wander away and the rest of the crowd is with Jesus, safely in the pasture, grazing on his beautiful fields, he will leave the 99 and come looking for us. And when he finds us, He will celebrate. That's the God we serve. The one who is not devoted to the crowd, but has loved you and wants nothing more than for you to love him and follow him wherever he leads, with the crowd or not. Just to be with him. Don't trust the crowd. Don't go with them just because that's where the crowd is going. Don't go with them because the crowd is unreliable. Don't go against them just because they're the crowd, because they're unreliable. Trust Jesus. Let Jesus be the standard. Go with him wherever he goes and worry about nothing except whether or not you're with him. Because if you're with him, you'll be with his father too. And when you're with the triune God, 
you've got all the crowd you need. Because no matter how powerful any human crowd can be, they cannot touch, they cannot defeat the triune God. The crowd turns on Jesus. They demand that he be crucified. On Monday, Thursday, we'll gather and we'll remember the story of how they mock him, of how they say that obviously he's not the king of the Jews because he is dying on a cross. Even even a violent, murderous lynch mob is unable to stop the redemptive work and the steadfast love of God. On Palm Sunday, the crowd gets it right. The steadfast love of God endures forever. They just have no idea what that's going to look like in the next week. But when Jesus is glorified, the disciples will understand. And they'll teach others to follow Jesus. And those disciples will teach others who will teach others all the way to us. We have the church. We have a congregation that is made up of faith not the crowd that's been gathered together in the name of Jesus where we can learn virtue like faith and love because we can abide with Jesus the way and the truth and the life. Amen.